0: These are writers writing in Greek, so they're educated in Greek. They know their some of their Greek classics, right? We have on um, papyrus and potsherds and stuff like that of school exercises where people would be copying out Homer. So people were educated on this. So we should expect to see references here and there or allusions to, to Greek classics. Mandaean literature. The Mandaeans are a Gnostic group from Iran. They have some connections with Manichaeism. It's interesting in their texts that they really elevate John the Baptist even higher than Jesus. They're actually adversaries, and Jesus is accused in the text of being a lying prophet and a magician, and he gets expelled. And so the Mandaeans, they don't trace themselves to Jesus. They trace themselves to John the Baptist. Sometimes people think, well, texts just tell history. They're just telling a story. But no, all texts have a reason, right? Have a purpose. So the Gospel of Judas, we know it existed by around 180 when Irenaeus of Leon mentions it. We have no trace of it from antiquity until I think it was around 2004, maybe 2007, something like that, when a a copy of it was released to the world. And they saw Judas in the text as a hero, not a villain. These apostles have a dream in which they see some priests and they're doing uh, awful things, sacrificing their children. And Jesus says, well, that's you guys. Apostles are portrayed very, very negatively. And think of that again, as a microcosm of groups in the church. So, certainly, this text is setting itself up against mainstream Christianity of some sort. And Judas is certainly one outside that number because he's a betrayer. So, he's kind of set apart as somewhat special. So, Jesus now has this discussion with Judas. And at one point, he says, see the apostles over there. They are terrible. You will surpass them. But in the end of the text, Judas still betrays him. And Judas is still the villain.
1: Today my guest is Professor Tony Burke from Toronto University, who has put together an anthology of ancient non-biblical Christian literature, which presents informed introductions and readable translations from a wide range of little-known apocryphal texts, most of which have never been translated into any modern language until now. My question today for christians that might be watching and the question is this what makes you think that the books that are in your bible would be approved by jesus and what makes you think the texts that are out there that are not in your bible would be rejected by jesus today let's talk about those texts and see what they suggest by the experts welcome back to the gnostic informant and you are about to attain true gnosis And uh, my guest today is Professor Tony Burke, who is uh, putting together these collections of apocryphal texts that links are in the description. You can look at them. There's three volumes right now, lots of material, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And I just want to start off by asking you, because the list of the books in your series, New New Testament, Apocrypha, more non-canonical scriptures, they have an enormous amount of titles that would not be considered household names today maybe some christians know them but they're not like everyone doesn't know about them in your estimate how well known were some of these books in the times when these books were written and which ones would you say are were extremely rare which ones are common
0: uh okay good questions um yeah if you want to get a sense of of, of how many texts there are the, um the volumes give you good, some good sense of that but there's also um the NASCAL.com has a, a, a what's called the eclab as christian apocrypha which also has lots of online resources for these texts as well and there's somewhere between 250 and 300 or so christian apocryphal texts so quite a lot and they range uh in time of composition from maybe the late first century till you know about 10 years ago so people keep keep writing them right um certainly the ones that people are most interested in it seems are the early ones because well there's a the sense that the earlier the texts are the closer well the more likely uh or yeah i guess more likely it is that they might have some information about jesus that is historical because everyone really wants to find out who is the historical jesus right 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 so, so texts like the gospel of thomas tend to tend to be uh of most people's consciousness um and which is one, as you said, a household name today. The point of this series um, that I've edited is to make people aware of texts that, that they may not know very much about, um, though some of these texts were very popular in antiquity. You look at, again, the Gospel of Thomas, we only have, um, we have three Greek scraps of it and then a longer Coptic text. Um, So the amount of physical evidence that we have for that text is dwarfed by the interest in it by people today. Yet we have something like 400 copies of a text called the Gospel of Nicodemus, which people may not know that well today, but was certainly very, very popular in antiquity and throughout the Middle Ages. Um, So what were the big ones in antiquity? Um, The Infancy Gospel of James, for example, is uh, stories about uh, Mary um, and her uh, conception and infancy, and segues into Jesus. Somewhere around 200 Greek manuscripts of that alone. Very, very popular. Um, the Gospel of Pseudo Matthew, which is an expansion of that text and includes some material from the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Also, lots and lots of manuscripts, right? Are these all second century texts? The Infancy Gospel of James is. It's probably late second century. People tend to date it somewhere around 175 or so. Uh, Pseudo Matthew is more, closer to sixth or seventh century. All uh, it's an adaptation of that, but it just shows you how it continues to be popular. Um, Gospel of Nicodemus, probably around the 4th century. And um, some people are aware of these texts today, um, but they would have been, in some ways, household names in antiquity and the medieval period as well. Not so much because people would know the text by name, but they would know the contents. So, for example, um, readings from the Gospel of James would be part of the regular a cycle of readings for uh, festivals, certain festivals, um, commemorating events in Mary's life. So they would know those stories or they would know them in iconography. Um, You know, we're very familiar with the the nativity scene that we see in the West today. It's a blending of Luke and Matthew, but in the East, it would also include elements from the the Infancy Gospel of James. Um, So that would be very much in their consciousness. And one other example, these, in the medieval period, there were these what we call mystery plays, where people would would put on these plays in the marketplaces of of towns, and they would run from um, uh, creation to the last judgment, so beginning to the end of time. And some of the material from the biblical text would end up being in those plays, including the Gospel of Nicodemus material. And that the main part of that 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 that. Uh, is of most interest is where jesus after he dies he goes down he descends into hell and liberates the the um hebrew bible patriarchs abraham adam and so on who never got a chance to meet jesus would never be saved because of knowledge of jesus so he has to go down there and preach to them and that way they are able to get out of the underworld and go to heaven so very much something that people um in antiquity and throughout the medieval period would know quite well despite the fact that they're not in the bible today that's interesting you
1: mentioned that because in, in a lot of evangelical Baptist circles, they do believe that Jesus went down there and preached the gospel and got people saved from, from hell or Hades, whatever you want to call it. But it's not, that particular story isn't found in the 66 canonical books anywhere. So they just sort of, it sort of just kind of gets absorbed in the, into this into this stream of consciousness of Christians without realizing it is that that's where it comes from then right there is a
0: vague reference to it in first or second Peter I can't remember which one um but and that may be the 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 origin of of the idea but it's like I said it's quite vague um but yeah it gets spun out into this into uh gospel Nicodemus and several other journey to hell texts or liberation of hell texts um and yeah, it's it's one of these things. that's part of Christian consciousness, that people don't really know where it comes from. A great example of that kind of thing is is uh, people thinking that the snake in the Garden of Eden is the devil, or right. that the, the the fruit is an apple. It's just part of knowledge that people don't realize does not have biblical basis.
1: Really good, really good point there. Um, was the church more likely to accept some some other like some books other than others? Like the Infancy Gospel, you mentioned that. Um, was this book widely accepted by Christians or was it controversial?
0: Uh, it was widely accepted by Christians in the East, which is where the, the, the Greek text proliferated. But also there's lots of copies in Syriac and Ethiopic and Arabic. Um, less so in the West. The West was got their Infancy Gospel of James material through the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew. So, it, it, so it's basically a Latin translation and then an expansion. So yeah, w- super widely known um uh so yeah those seem to be very popular people want to know more about jesus want to know more about mary but also very popular are stories of saints uh so the apostles for example mary is a saint too but i'm thinking specifically of apostles so um in the late second century thereabouts maybe the early third um there are these individual acts of apostles that were created so uh the canonical book of acts is all of the apostles right but these individual acts are acts of thomas acts of john acts of peter etc so it begins to be composed around the end of the second century and before long every apostle has one uh um uh even secondary apostles like matthias who joined the group after judas uh went off uh and hung himself um so every apostle gets one of these and they're very widely copied um and adapted in various ways so um the earliest of these people are most interested in because um they have some unorthodox kind of contents it's really when you know the church is still working out what what belief is what correct belief is versus wrong belief um so these early texts have some really unorthodox contents but uh and so so they don't all survive intact completely but they do survive in a sense in their adaptations translated into latin with some changes made translated into other languages and so on so we have um quite a large amount of those uh texts uh in various forms and uh, they get boiled down in the middle ages to some bare information that become lives of saints collections as well um so yeah so they're widely known apocryphal acts um certain Uh, texts that connect with doctrine so for example um we talked about the infancy gospel of james which talks about mary's birth and conception and upbringing but we have also a text about her death called the dormition of mary and that's very widely known as well there's lots of variations of it in lots of languages but it talks about how uh, when mary died um well there are variations among them in one she dies and then her soul is instantly reunited with her and she goes up to heaven so body and soul up into heaven or um she doesn't die and she just goes physically up into heaven right away the point of this is that if mary is so special and so pure she shouldn't have to suffer uh death like regular humans do so she gets a special kind of um ascension up into heaven and that's part of catholic doctrine another idea that you you know connecting to this point that there are there's beliefs among christians that they don't realize are not biblical this is much more a Catholic doctrine or Coptic and Greek Orthodox, but it's an idea about how Mary died, not in the Bible, but very common in these texts, very much a part of the Christian liturgical cycle, um, but not biblical.
1: Wow. That's fascinating. Um, I was thinking about, do we, do you have like a, a, a knowledge or an idea of like, locations on some of these texts are there some like i know like if it's coptic obviously it was in egypt but like is there some certain places where certain texts are more popular than others for example i don't know antioch syria or rome has this this particular book is like
0: huge in rome but nobody over here um. has it. is there anything like that um Thinking again about, about the early period, people are really interested in 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 where these ideas kind of crop up, and there's the, and so we, we with the canonical gospels, we try to kind of pinpoint them in various places. Mark maybe Rome, um, Matthew maybe Antioch. We don't really know. None of the texts ever say where they're from, right? And so sometimes uh, people think about schools of thought that originate in certain places. So the Thomas literature, for example, tends to get placed in a, in Syria. Um, that's a really good example of that. But again, as I said, it's really hard to pinpoint them. And so when these things spread out, we certainly do see certain places where, where certain texts are more popular than others. Uh, I guess one example we can bring up is, uh, Bartholomew. So we have, uh, several texts associated with Bartholomew and he's considered a kind of a patron saint of Armenia. So his, his Acts texts Talk about him journeying to Armenia, and they talk about where his relics are, and so on. So certainly very, very popular in Armenia, and that's where the you know most of our traditions are. Um, Then we have some texts. I think Acts of Timothy uh, is connected with Ephesus, um, and this was something like a fifth century or so text. And really, it's clear that this text was written there. It knows the area so well, and certainly wants to create this connection between Timothy and Ephesus. Um, So we have those kinds of regional things, right? Um, There's an Acts of Titus, which is uh, connected to Crete. And really, we think about those connections because of how well the authors seem to know their places. And the reason that the knowledge of the places are so infused in the text is because uh, the authors are, are trying to make these connections with particular apostles and therefore validate their particular church but also if you can if you can trace where the various places that titus goes on the island of crete it becomes almost a um, a pilgrimage itinerary so all these places become very important and so uh, they become ideal places for christians who want to uh, express their piety to visit buy some things some you know knickknacks that that the churches sell or some texts or icons etc so it becomes an industry really. So it, the text becomes connected with with places, with uh, um, festivals, with 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 artifacts, and so on. These things all really connect to one another quite quite well.
1: That's fascinating. Now, want I want to talk about John the Baptist a little bit. There are some questions about which apocryphal texts tell us about the life of John the Baptist that the four main Gospels don't.
0: Um. This question might arise somewhat from the fact that in the Gospel of Luke, we have a birth story of John the Baptist. And um, we have this connection, of course, with Jesus and John as, as adults. Jesus seems to be interested in the John the Baptist preaching. He becomes part of the group and then goes off on his own. And we also find out in, I think it's the Book of Acts, that the Baptist group continues even after Jesus is uh, split from John the Baptist's death. So there's kind of a, a mystery around what exactly uh, is the origins of john the baptist and his group and what happened to them um, most of our lo- uh, t- information about the life of john the baptist so expansions on this tend to be late so i'll talk about them in a second but the earliest material probably earliest text of all uh, is again the infancy gospel of james and uh after going through mary's birth conception upbringing, and Jesus' jesus's birth we get this one story of john the baptist and it really answers the question of, um, how did John the Baptist get saved from the massacre of the innocents uh, in Bethlehem? Um, he may not have really been in Bethlehem, but still this idea that John the Baptist was, was a child too, and how come he didn't die? Um, so we have the story where uh, the, the soldiers of Herod come looking for, for John the Baptist, and his mother escapes, mo- his mother Elizabeth, with him into the desert, and there is a great big mountain and she calls upon god to help her and the mountain opens and she goes inside and it closes and she's saved so that's a very early text um this gets expanded in later texts so most of our later john the baptist texts are um, expansions of what we find in the gospels and the expansion of that story which shows you in a sense how important that text was becomes because it becomes the raw material for later on right it's almost on the same level as the canonical gospels as a source for john the baptist so um the third volume of the more new testament apocryphal series has uh, a few john the baptist texts in it that i i worked on so these are greek byzantine probably fairly late um but basically they take that story from the think it's gospel of james and expand on it quite a bit so we learn well Often these texts answer questions, right? Um, so, like the, the slaughter of the innocents thing. So, what? How did it? How did John the Baptist and Elizabeth survive in the mountain? Well, this text tells us that an angel fed them. And then what happened after that? Well, an, as soon as Herod the Great died and he wasn't after John anymore, an angel comes along and takes them back home. And then John grows up, and then we get the story of his uh, his death at the hands of Herod Antipas, and then some other things as well. And um we also learn that uh what happened to John the Baptist's body? The gospels tell us he was beheaded, so what happened? Well, this text tells us that angels brought it and and to the Jerusalem temple and placed it uh with Zechariah, Zecharias, his father, who also is buried in the temple. There are other there are other traditions about where John is buried. That's just one of them. Everyone seems to want to. Have John in their particular location, but yeah, he's answering kinds of these questions: What happened to John's body? What happened to uh, how did they get fed in the in the in the mountain? And the, the text ends with what happened to the Herods, um, um, because you know every villain has to get his uh, comeuppance, right? So we learn um, about the death of Herod Antipas, his wife and his daughter all meet grisly ends. Um, the the historical figures we know about from josephus and they lived fine they, they went on to uh you know live out their lives in, in the way that most royal family people do even if they're in exile they're still you know wealthy and protected so christian imagination didn't like that they didn't like it that they they had a, a nice cushy end so they create these stories in which they they die gruesome deaths so that's one of the things that they want to to do and the last one i think worth oh no this is yeah, i'll mention one other because i don't want to belabor the point um but Mandean literature so the, the Mandans are a gnostic group from from iran they have some connections with manichaeism but it's interesting in their text that they really elevate john the baptist even higher than jesus he's portrayed as an, an envoy of light so if they they see the world as as or the cosmos as being forces of darkness and forces of light so john the baptist is this envoy of light who uh comes along and he he interacts with jesus and um they're actually adversaries and jesus is ac- accused in the text of uh being a, a, um, a lying prophet and a magician and he gets expelled and so the Mandaeans they don't trace themselves to jesus they trace themselves to john the baptist and so they have several texts which talk about him and various um, activities in his life and and uh, messages that he um, passed along to this group
1: wow Cause you, see, when you hear about that, you're like, it, it, it really makes you wonder, like, where, how does this tradition come about that is competing with the Christian tradition where John gets put higher? You also have an, there's another tradition where Simon Magus is the highest, and he's the the Simonians have him as the the one to look up to, and like again, Jesus is like, yeah, he's there, there, but like he's not as good as Simon Magus. I don't know how they would portray that and the, his wife helena they thought that she was athena incarnate and uh hippolytus relates this in the refutation th- uh stories but i wonder it just makes you wonder about these early traditions and how diverse they were you know
0: mm-hmm. yeah well even just look at the book of acts you know canonical book of acts here we have uh philip goes to samaria he meets uh, simon Magus there um Philip does some miracles, and Simon says, uh, offers to buy the power that Philip has. Um, so we know Simon Magus is, is an actual historical figure. Acts talks about him, um, and you think of um, think of that little story as 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 interactions between these uh, figures in antiquity who uh, amassed followings around themselves. Max portrays it so that Philip is the winner in this kind of dispute. And Simon Magus is humbled. Um, you can just imagine that the, the groups groups around people like Simon would have their own traditions, their own texts, in which uh, their chosen figure is the winner. right? Um, so um, I'd like to think of, of when we see conflicts in text, which something I'm quite interested in is conflicts, um, that they are some kind of a microcosm of some historical reality. the the actual event may not have happened philip and simon magus may not have had a this uh conflict or contest of sorts uh we get similar things in the acts of peter between peter and simon magus they may not have happened but the groups that come after may have been in competition with one another so christians versus the simonians are reflected in the text where with peter or philip and simon magus and the christian texts the christians always win we don't have the texts of the simonians um but we have traditions about them we hear about them um there may have been texts at some point we don't know but certainly in their traditions their leader would be the one who would come come out on top and the mendian similar um they may have a historical connection with john the baptist it's possible and if so these uh, st- these texts um pass on some of that uh in, um over time they get changed and developed and so on. But there may be some historical kernel there of, of this group somehow beginning in, an, in a John the Baptist group um, that competed with Christian groups. And so the text reflects those competitions.
1: Yeah, and it also, to me, when I'm thinking about these conflicting traditions, it sort of makes me think it's more likely that these people are, historically like i guess real like but not that people because people do doubt these people's existence you sure. do have a lot of especially on the internet but like when you when you, if you think about it if this was all just made up why would there be traditions that conflict conflict with another tradition if it's coming out of, like it, you would think if it was, this was all just made up there'd just be one christianity and then you'd have like you know, some some diversity happening from that source, but not like oh, our guy's better than your guy. Yeah, it's more likely that if there was people thinking one guy's higher than another guy, that there's people probably existed.
0: I think that's probably yeah. a good indicator. I think so. Um, it's it's not <coughs> beyond possibility that that someone could be invented and people keep developing the traditions about this invention. Uh, not realizing that they were invented that's possible but i think what we end up getting in the various texts both canonical and non-canonical are these little elements of of incidental information um like connections uh to these to figures like simon and john the baptist um like so mark for example will mention simon uh of of Cyrene, who 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 carried Jesus' cross, and we'll mention that that his I think it's his sons are still with us. So these little bits of historical information, right, that the authors know, and I think that that can't all be made up. It's just point. It's
1: random information that you don't yeah. just say. It's, yes. Yeah, I I totally agree with what you're saying, and I um, I think people should. I, I challenge people who are on the farther skeptic side that are like, none of this is, re- I challenge you to, to open, look at those things. Some of these things just don't, don't make sense unless there's something historically there. But that brings me to the next question because you do have these traditions that arise and they were trying to portray a message through these characters. For example, the gospel of Judas, what is the gospel of Judas trying to, what is, what's the purpose of this text? Because Judas is like, most, most people think Judas is like the evil one who betrayed Jesus. But this gospel of Judas story sort of flips it on its head and changes it up a little bit and gives us a different portrayal.
0: What is the purpose of this text?
1: Right. Um, and it's good to...
0: It's good to ask about purpose, right? Um, you know, you segue that from history. Sometimes people think, well, texts just tell history, that they're just telling a story. But no, all texts have a reason, right? Have a purpose. People select what's in them for a particular reason, right? Um, so the gospel of Judas, uh, we know it existed by around 180 when Irenaeus of Leon mentions it. Um, but no one had it had seen the Gospel of Judas. Um We have no trace of it from antiquity until I think it was around 2004, maybe 2007, something like that, when a a copy of it was uh, finally um, released to the world. And the, 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 the scholars who were involved in creating the critical edition and translation of that text, they had a particular way of understanding it. And they saw Judas in the text as a hero, not a villain. And part, this goes back to, in part to Irenaeus, because Irenaeus says that the, the, the people who valued this text thought of Judas that way. But um, scholars who came after the initial translation team said, no, I don't think that's what it says at all. And I'll, I'll give you a, one example uh, from the text. This is the one I tend to use with my students. There's a, there's a, there's a section of it in which Jesus is, is criticizing the apostles so the, the the 11 right everyone but judas and he says terrible things about them um and at one point they, ha- they these apostles have a dream in which they see some priests and they're doing uh awful things sacrificing their children uh having sex with men um awful in their estimation uh various acts of murder and jesus says well that's you guys so um the apostles are portrayed very, very negatively. And think of that, again, as a microcosm of groups in the church. So this would be your mainstream Orthodox Christian Christianity as reflected by the, in the, the 12 apostles, or the 11, I should say. So certainly this text is, is setting itself up against mainstream Christianity of some sort. And Judas is certainly one outside that number because he's a betrayer. So he's kind of set apart as somewhat special. So Jesus now has this discussion with Judas. And at one point he says, see the apostles over there. They are terrible. You will surpass them. Now the original uh, translation of it made it sound like you are better than them. You surpass them. But the subsequent translators said, no, no, that's not what it means at all. You will surpass them in your villainy. You are going to be worse than them. So we have two different approaches to the text is judas better than the 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 nasty apostles or is he worse than the nasty apostles and the worst then seems to be carrying the day um but the rest of the text uh, goes on that jesus talks to judas about certain cosmological and cosmological um uh, details about how the universe was created it's a fully gnostic kind of description of of the world and the whole point of the text then is that orthodoxy is worshipping the wrong God. Uh, is worshipping the Demiurge, this creator of this lower realm. Um, whereas Jesus comes from the realm of the higher God. And so he's telling Judas this, but in the end of the text, Judas still betrays him. And Judas is still the villain. It's
1: such a It's such a fascinating story because on one hand you have Jesus telling him here you have the secret knowledge you're going to be called the 13th which is a really you don't hear like the 13th isn't he one of the 12 but wait is there another one like basically saying you're going to be an outsider yeah and so but like you said I, i didn't realize that until you just mentioned that there's two different interpretations one of them saying you'll be better another one saying you'll surpass them in your villainy wow that's it just makes you wonder like these early christians have different views on certain things and it's fascinating it really is
0: well that, that that's scholars having view, different views on different things too right it's about trying to understand a text which is fragmentary sure uh, tr- it's a coptic translation from greek so the coptic translator has probably messed some things up so these things can be very difficult um another thing that that they do in there is uh, jesus uh, sorry judas is described in the text as a demon the original translators kind of do a bunch of uh, athletics or acrobatics, whatever you want to say, try to show how demon is not a bad thing. Um, it just means spirit. It's something rather innocuous. Um, but it's, this is a Christian text. A Christian text uses the word demon. It's probably yeah. a negative thing. And so, again, the new translators are saying, no, no, no. Judas is bad. Um, so, um, now, it's not all that strange for Gnostic texts to flip things on their heads, right? So it's not surprising that Judas could become heroic because in the Gnostic creation story, the snake is the hero, right? And right. the God is the villain. So it's not its not beyond possibility, but it just doesn't seem to be going on in that text.
1: There's a group called the Cainites. I don't yeah. know if you're familiar with them. They're, everything's the opposite for these guys. The Cain's the hero, Judas is the hero, the serpent's the hero, anything that's, op- that's just the opposite of whatever the text says. Like these were some real rebels some real early Christian rebels at the time, um, but yeah, uh, it and it also shows you how a mistranslation can even
0: create another tradition. Maybe is that possible? You think? In a, um, I guess so. Um, and you never know what what people are going to do to develop that trend, that tradition, right? In even in a modern period where people, it, you know, with the the um, the sensation of this cause when it was. Tra- uh, when the translation and edition were published um on, so you, you saw people talking about it on the media and so the media is saying uh, you know scholars claim that judas was a hero etc cetera, etc cetera. well no at best those scholars said this text portrays judas that way we don't really know the history right sure but it, it's it, because of uh discussion of it in, in popular arenas like the uh, television media it becomes kind of stuck in people's heads so people will, will, will now always think that Judas uh, was seen as a hero in the Gospel of Judas because the, tech, the, the the scholarship that came after is not as widely known. And so you could certainly see people developing that tradition in certain ways, um, not necessarily creating new texts, but certainly in their discussions of, of Judas and, and they would expand it to include the misreadings of the Gospel of Judas that become fairly entrenched. And I think if
1: you're, um, if you're one of those predetermined, like the Calvinist types, um, you kind of have to think that Judas was chosen in some higher purpose or else it's like, well, then why, why is the, this, why did it play out that way? Cause you're, you think everything's predetermined. So, I mean, I, I know Augustine wrote a lot about this, this, um, in between, between everything having predetermination, but also having free will, mm-hmm. and I think Judas is the perfect, the perfect study for this type of thing. Like, is he is he wrong or is he chosen? Like, which one is it? You know. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and the, the the story had to play out this way. This is the way God planned it, right? So, Judas never really had a choice in in some ways um i guess it, it's worked out by the theologians as you say about, about balancing uh predestination and free will um I, I tend to like the um the modern takes on judas where he's he's seen uh as less less villainous and and uh um you know shades of gray we like in modern consciousness right so it's a great scene in the uh last temptation of christ where jesus is talking to judas and um uh, jesus tells judas you have to betray me and jesus is like i can't do that He said why why would you ask me to do that and he says that's why god gave you that's why god gave me the easy job so jesus's job to die on the cross is easy betraying one's friend is the hard one and judas is doing it reluctantly jesus he's being told to do it by jesus it's the role he has to play so those those takes on Judas, i think are really interesting and really says something about our modern uh world where, um, um, I think we try to find find the, the the intention behind what people do, and we understand that things can be very complicated. So, so a modern Judas is, is a much more conflicted character than the one we find in the Bible.
1: There's also there's also this interpretation, which might lead to some anti-Semitism as well, because Judas, the name Judas, is like Judah, and yeah. Hebrew, and like he's the one portraying or betraying jesus he and it's like you know you also have jesus cursing fig trees and the fig tree represents israel and so you wonder if a lot of this stuff sort of plays into this those are the bad they're, they're, the, they're the ones who deny the messiah and and what what comes from that you know it makes you wonder.
0: yeah um and again this looks this is like uh i was mentioning about trying looking at these texts and and trying to see what reflects uh, microcosms of, or groups in the text, right? Is was Judas a historical figure, or does he represent the choice between uh, the choice for for the people around him, Jews of Judea, of, of accepting or not accepting Jesus? Um, now, the name Judas is a very common uh, name for the time. Jude, Judas, Jesus had a brother named Judas, which right. is what we call him, Jude. Um, So it's certainly possible. Um, Paul talks about how that Jesus was handed over. Um, Usually it's translated as betrayed. So we know that there was a tradition around uh, Paul's time of something like that happening, but he never names Judas. So by the time you get to the Gospel of Mark, has this now spun out into this, again, a microcosm of of Jewish reception to Jesus as Judas. Uh, It's certainly possible. And, And when we see Judas represented in medieval art, um, he's often portrayed um, in certain ways that reflect the, the Jewish people. Um, so he certainly becomes associated with uh, uh, Jewish rejection of Jesus in in iconography and art.
1: That's such a good point too, because that's one of the that's one of the parts of Paul's letters that really indicate something actually happening historically. Yeah as Jesus being handed over that when he talks about the night he was handed over, that's, he's talking about an event there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think It's pretty clear. Something, something did happen, but like you said, there's no mention to Judas. There's no, and then it's like this, the, that historical event become something like the Judas tradition. Interesting.
0: Uh, uh, I, have, you been, have you been reading Richard Carrier lately? By the
1: way, uh, I, uh, I'm familiar with Richard Carrier. I used to think before I started really like re, like you know talking to a lot of academics. I was convinced by him because I, was, I left the church and I became a mythicist, and I was like, "Yeah, this, this is a PhD. He's an expert, so he has to be right." And then I, the more I started talking to other academics, I started to say, "Well, there's some problems here, especially with the whole pre-existing angelic thing." Yeah. i just don't have any evidence of that and so yeah but what I, i'm curious why you thought that because i've done videos actually refuting carrier okay I'll like, to my yeah i'll i'll send you the link i didn't i didn't know if you saw it or not but yeah i i uh i don't think i think it's fringe now i do yeah i just um i mean I think the Q thing makes a lot of sense so obviously someone said something these sayings are coming from somewhere. I also think the, like, like we just mentioned that part in Paul or the night he was handed over. What night is that? Who was he talking about? Who handed over? So something happened. Yeah. Some, yeah, somebody got crucified. And then those, that, this, that little kernel of historical truth gets, you know, legendary, legendized. Um, but yeah, Carrier on the internet, he, um. He has a lot of people who think he's you know, he's very convincing to a lot of people. And uh that's kind of my channel is sort of in that trench warfare. But I I'm a histor I think he's existed, obviously. Um yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah.
0: Ta-da. And I'm 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 relatively uh skeptical about a lot of information in the gospels. I just think yeah. this is so much you know invention um but I, I i don't go so far as to think that jesus never existed um i i actually assigned carriers uh jesus from out of space book to my class a couple of years ago just, um, as an example of 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 jesus scholarship um they had a range of texts they could uh, books they could read so Carrier was one and um reza aslam was another one and then a few others um uh I kind of regretted it. <laughs> um it's interesting, but he's he's got such a chip on his shoulder. That's what it is. It's it's
1: yeah. this is the thing about I'll give you I'll just give you a couple of prime examples. So when he's talking about the other dying and rising gods, mm-hmm. what he'll do is for example, he he said that Osiris was dead for three days and three nights, and resurrects on Easter. And like, whoa, that's kind of that sounds like and then he'll say like Anana was crucified. Okay, whoa, where are you getting this from? But then when you actually look at the text that he's referencing, he's he's taking he's he's playing with the language. Anana doesn't get crucified. Anana gets put on a she does get hung on a on a wood with a with a nail, which is like, okay, you can let's just say it that way. <laughs> why why do you have to change the language to make it sound Christian? He did the same thing with Osiris. Osiris wasn't dead for 3 days and 3 nights. It was that he was dead for Four months, actually, because he uh, he gets killed in the winter or uh, fall time. He does resurrect. He does come back up in the springtime. There was a celebration of his resurrection for springtime, but it's only because she, uh, Isis, mourns for four days. Mm-hmm. So he found that he finds that passage. Isis mourned for four days, and then he says three days and three nights. So it's like he's taking things, and then he like then the way he portrays it to the audience. It's so like he's like stretching it a little bit. Yeah, that sure. when I started finding that stuff out, I was like, okay, that's 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 not cool. But um, the 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 big thing for me where I say, okay, I'm out of this. This is this is I'm just I'm no longer convinced by this. It's not about that. It's not about that mythicists are questioning the evidence of Jesus. Like for example, he didn't write anything down. Yeah, good point. He didn't write anything down. All right, where's the contemporary evidence? Where's the physical evidence at? Okay, there really isn't any. Sure, that's all fine. But that's not what mythicists are saying. What mythicists are saying is there was a Jesus tradition that predates Paul. And then these Jews worshiped an angel named Jesus who didn't exist. And then he was uhemerized. Yeah. Uh, if that's a big claim and if that's true, we would have evidence for that. Mm-hmm. You can't just theorize that and then just say, I'm right like you need to show why that's the case and there's no we don't have any traditions of any jews having we even have angelology there's tons of angel names as far as i'm concerned jesus is not one of them Mm -hmm. even if you did find that even if you found like a list of angels from first century bce somewhere and there was like a jesus on there it still wouldn't be that big of a deal because it's just a name but you don't even have that so yeah. as, far, as far as I'm concerned, we're working with nothing. We're just, we're just like it's like you're pushing. You're it's it's almost like you you have a hypothesis, and instead of letting the data speak for itself, you're just push. You're plugging everything in to make it fit. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, it's like Carrier could be right, but like it's the way he argues it is not. It's not like we're putting our heads together and trying to figure out if it's true. It's that. He's arguing to make it sound true if that right. makes sense so that's that's my whole beef with carrier <laughs> but <laughs> you know i've I've had some videos on that but um yeah no I think I I, I like you like you mentioned just before I uh said that is uh, obviously this is a a lot of this stuff is mythologized a lot of the gospels are mythology I just think it's more likely that it's based off historic like uh, there was a guy mm-hmm. if that makes sense any thoughts yeah. on that
0: uh yes <laughs> um i think that i, I don't recall all the um arguments he's making in the book now i'm trying to block them out um but uh, one i think good one is what he does with james so paul talks about james and him being, being the brother of jesus and carrie goes you know really out of his way to show that he doesn't really mean real brother um so it's about and that's what he tends to do, particularly with Paul, is these little bits of information. He he ignores the common sense um, interpretation and does these weird acrobatics to make it so it's something cosmic and, and weird. Um, yeah. And yeah. And that's the
1: thing. It's like, okay, if you're going to say this is all cosmic, all right, where's the evidence for that? Yeah. Where's the tradition at? And like. He'll, he'll say, oh well, well they didn't they didn't preserve those texts.
0: Yeah, because it, it's been uh, um, suppressed.
1: Yeah, but but we have that all the heresies and the heresiologists writing about Docetism and all the Gnostic groups. Why would what would be the reason to just single this one thing out mm. compared to all these other her- heresies? There is no reason. Yeah, and um and and like you said, there's like the when 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 Paul talks about Jesus being born of a woman under the law according to the law yeah. uh, by the seed of david those are specific th- those are terminology we see those in the dead sea scrolls people born according to the law um that th- it only means one thing you don't see that ever wh- wh- why would that be a why would that be a celestial thing well, what's the reason yeah. to say that well because you're trying to make it fit into this mythicist thing that's that's what it looks like to me so that's why i'm not convincing. i used to be I, and that's why a big topic on my channel has been mythicism that's why you kind of always i'm always asking questions about historicity i don't know if you know, picked up on that but that's because i used to think that was the case and i'm still i'm still fascinated by the topic mm-hmm. i think it's a fascinating topic is this real is this true what how much of it is real how much of it is historical i think it's a fascinating topic
0: mm-hmm. yeah and I, and I agree um um you know, it's as with most things in life. Uh, um, you know, things go on, on a spectrum. You believe everything, you believe nothing, and you know, truth is somewhere usually in between. Um, um, I think I think I, I would be more open to Carrier's uh, positions if he didn't present them the way he does and the way and how he talks about other scholars and their views. Um, that's what everybody says about him. He's not a pleasant fella. If he uh,
1: if, if he did if he presented his arguments a little bit more honestly, like like mm-hmm. instead of being like, yeah, Osiris was dead for four three days and three nights. If he actually said, oh, uh, since ISIS mourned for four nights, maybe the Christians are looking at that possibility. Like if he if he kept it in that language, yeah. I think people would respect it a little more. Rather than saying, no, this is the case. And everyone's just dumb because they don't see it. <laughs> and, and, that, and that's like, that's why nobody wants to hear it anymore. Because you the way, the way you're arguing is just like, comes off that way. So that's, yeah. I agree with you on that. You know, he, I think he could have, he would have been fine if you just would have, but been a little more professional about it, you know, but whatever. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, so the next one question is about the gospel of Mary. Okay. And, uh, do you think the Gospel of Mary suggests that early Christianity was divided?
0: Well, I think every every apocryphal text and even some canonical texts tell us that Christianity was divided, right? They're all reflections of, of one group or another. Um, four canonical Gospels, these are four different groups um, that, um, as different as they were, were close enough that they could form... Uh, something united and therefore we get the new testament as a reflection of bringing groups together right some some groups did not get brought together did not get invited to the party Um, so the gospel of mary it certainly reflects uh something a bit unorthodox Um, and i think the the very end of the text where we have this um, discussion between mary and peter shows that we are dealing with a group that sees itself as distinct from Orthodoxy as represented by Peter, who tends to be uh, Roman Orthodox Christianity in the text. So again, uh, characters as, as uh, microcosms. So Mary has this teaching that he, she says she got from Jesus. She presents it to the apostles. Peter says, there's no way that this is true. And then um, Levi comes to, to Mary's defense, and then everyone kind of settles down. Um, but what is it that divides this group from other groups? that would be in the teaching and the teaching um as mary has a vision of jesus and he tells her about how um the soul ascends from earth up into the heavens um and we see these these ascents in uh greek literature at the time but also in gnostic texts Uh, and gnostic texts you know really a form of christianity that brings in a lot of greek ideas And the idea is that after death, uh, for the Gnostics at least, your soul goes up to the highest heaven because you have the saving knowledge. And so you get to transcend the earth and go up to to where you should be. Uh, And along the way, you you encounter certain uh, demonic figures, gatekeepers, and you have to tell them secret special words in order to get past them. And and we have lots of examples of these things, but Mary is one of them. Um, Unfortunately, the middle section of the Gospel of Mary is lost. So we don't have the entire text, but certainly we have some of it, um, which gives a sense of the the, the teaching, which would not be um, considered acceptable to people who would value Peter as their the head of their group. So Mary's group big to Gnostic ascent, maybe some other things that have dropped out of the text. Maybe also there's the sense that this group uh, values women more than mainstream Christianity does, since Mary gets such a vital role here. Um, yeah. I think we have to be careful to uh, jump too quickly to this notion that Gnostic groups were like proto feminists. But um, because just because a character is portrayed a certain way doesn't mean it reflects their actual day to day beliefs. But we do have other evidence that uh, certain groups valued women more than uh, mainstream patriarchal Christianity did. So it's not beyond possibility. So, yeah. Um, these uh, texts like the gospel of mary the gospel of judas they seem to grab a hold of a a character who's just outside the 12 and make them the the spokesperson for their group um so they're certainly differentiating themselves from the mainstream and presenting ideas that the presumably the mainstream would not find uh or have not found palatable but they become the avenue to get these ideas across so here's this is what the church is telling you the mainstream church or the 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 most um, powerful group in our community but here's another idea that comes from somewhere else in the tradition and then the that's what they present in our text
1: do you think because in this text you have peter is this opposing vo- voice to mary do you think that if peter represents the church as like the you know the church of rome maybe do you think there's something happening there in the text that's sort of uh you know they're putting that versus you know the the orthodox or whatever the church of rome versus mary who was the secret knowledge
0: is that what you think that's what's happening in this text yeah and we we see also same thing also at the end of the gospel of thomas where uh it's again peter and mary uh in opposition uh, well mary is not speaking but jesus is representing her um peter's saying woman women don't uh aren't deserving of, of life meaning immortality And Jesus says, I will make her male, which, you know, some kind of spiritual mumbo jumbo. Um, But the point is that women are allowed in. And so here we have Gospel of Mary, again, an issue of women being allowed in or being allowed to to have a voice. And then we have another text a little bit later on called Sophia, where, again, we have Mary being represented. Um, She's... she's, uh, one of the most vocal characters in our text and again peter is is vying with her um arguing with her about about women's roles women's place so you know if we see that in one text it's a curiosity we see it in three um you know what what, what what's going on there um so it certainly seems to be that that's that we do have this microcosm of a conflict um and it's not all the time that Peter represents a, a villainous kind of a character in our texts. We have texts written in his name as well. Uh, a couple of texts called the Apocalypse of Peter or a Gospel of Peter. So certainly he's not he, hes hes not always a villain. He's not always presented as the person who opposes us in the text. Um, but um, certain groups seem to like to use him in that way to represent um a powerful form of Christianity but not necessarily the correct form. Fascinating.
1: This is is the text that I think everybody should check out is that (laughs) Gospel of Mary. It's really fascinating text. And that um my favorite I'm just you know just uh for just just for the sake of to give people a glimpse and my favorite part of that text and it's such a fascinating passage is when Jesus is telling Mary not to make laws i think he says something along the lines of don't write laws like the lawless ones do and i'm like and this is the the jesus that's being portrayed in this text is just such a fascinating character really i really like this text because the way jesus is portrayed is this super sage with this and the words he's saying like it's really well done it's really (laughs) It's like, I just think people need to see that side of Jesus more than the ones we do, than everyone's used to. It's a different
0: side. Yeah. I wish we had the complete text. It would be just to see the entire thing. And this is a text that um, we talked earlier about what was popular and what was not popular in antiquity. Before we found a copy of the Gospel of Mary, we had no idea that it even existed. So it probably wasn't very popular in antiquity. And we have, I think, two copies of it, um, maybe three um none of them complete but it it's it's completely off everyone's radar none of the heresiologists mention it it doesn't come up on in lists of texts not to read it's just barely known at all so it's a it's a wonder that it survived um yeah we have a few other texts like that but we never knew that they existed in antiquity until we found copies of them
1: yeah that's another thing so the text that we have is missing a big chunk Is there, is it because we only have one manuscript of it? Is that what's going on? Or
0: copies of it are also the same, is that what happened? No, we have one full, well, not full. We have one longer Coptic uh, manuscript with some missing pages. So literally some pages have fallen out. That's why we don't have it. And then the one or two others, sorry, I don't remember if there's one or two are just papyrus fragments. So just really just little bits. so, yes, we did have full copies of these uh, uh, at least three um um but uh they've all suffered damage in some way Wow, and does anyone ever mention this text throughout
1: the, until we find it or no? no one um wow, yeah, it just pops up I don't know what what was this like the nineteen hundreds when they found it
0: uh something like that it was I don't think it was published until i think um it might not have been published until after the Nakemite library was found. Um, the the wars kind of got in the way a little bit of, of publishing some things. But it's found in a, in a manuscript, uh, I, think it's, I think it's the Bruce Codex, um, that uh, is not part of the Nag Hammadi find, but it's a manuscript from from Egypt in Coptic. Um, and it tends to get brought into the discussions of Nag Hammadi library material because it's so similar in, in thought. So sometimes people get confused thinking it is from the Nag Hammadi library, but it's not. Um, but it is a, a single book collection of Gnostic texts uh, Gospel of Mary is one of them. Apocryphon of John is another one. So it certainly has overlaps with Nag material.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. The last thing I want to ask you about, and a lot of people that watch me are big fans of Dennis McDonald's work. <laughs> yeah, and he does a lot of work on the mimesis, the Greco-Roman epics. And your, in your, in your um, research in your line of work, do you have you come across any examples of these apocryphal texts having connections or? something drawing from greco-roman instead of just the hebrew side that we always know that we all know about
0: uh for sure like these are writers writing greek so they're educated in greek they know their some of their, at least some of their Greek classics right we have um evidence of um on papyrus and pot shirts and stuff like that of school exercises where people would be copying out piece, pieces of uh homer so people were educated on this so we should expect to see uh, references here and there, or allusions to, to Greek classics I don't know, texts. And yeah, Dennis McDonald is a classic for doing this. Um, the, I think where he got his start with this was with the Acts of Andrew. Yeah. And um, so the Acts of Andrew is going to get one of these individual apocryphal acts. And there's a there's another text re- somewhat related to it called the Acts of Andrew and Matthias. In which Andrew rescues Matthias from the hands of these uh, cannibals in a place called Myrmidon or Myrmidonia, I should say. And Dennis thinks the Acts of Andrew Matthias was the lost beginning to the Acts of Andrew, so he reads them all together as one long text. And he's thinking, why? Where does this idea of the Myrmidonians come from? And it comes from from Homer, uh, this uh, this land of cannibals. And so he sees the Acts of Andrew with the Acts of Andrew Matthias all together with it as kind of a Christianization of, of Homer. And he, he has this uh, long list of parallels um, between uh, not only in the Odyssey and the Iliad, but some of the Greek classics as well. And I think that, that there's really something to that with that particular text. Um, I don't necessarily agree that the two texts were originally joined. But I do think it's it's um, quite reasonable to think that there could be parallels with Greek classics in there to 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 to, to make Andrew a Christian Odysseus, though without all the um, the themes that the Christians may not be as uh, attracted to. Um, I tend, though, um, to think that that Dennis sees Dennis makes too much out of small things, um, like you'll see a, a word here. And say, oh, this is evoking this. And then it makes a lot out of isolated words, which I think goes too far um, often. Um, but then the basic notion that uh, writers of both canonical and non canonical texts who write in Greek, who are writing primarily to Greek audiences, would know their Homer, would know their, their uh, and some other classical texts. Uh, another example you can bring in is uh, the Apocalypse of Peter. Apocalypse of Peter <coughs> is a Jesus has come back from the dead and he takes uh, Peter on a tour of the underworld. And this is one of many tour of hell apocalypses, as we call them, tour of hell apocalypses. Um, Paul is an apocalypse of Paul, which is very similar. Apocalypse of Mary, very similar. These tours of the underworld. And the underworld, the topography of the underworld is essentially the, the, the way the Greeks l- looked at it. You know, we get rivers of fire. We sometimes get a, 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 a Charon, the the guy who who takes people across uh, one of the rivers on his boat. Um, we get the terminology Hades, Tartarus, all these other things. This is really drawn from Greek Greek mythology, not 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 Jewish uh, uh, depictions of the underworld, though. Um, that's we don't really have any developed Jewish depictions of the underworld. Uh, like we do in greek literature so certainly that's an adaptation of those ideas for for a christian audience um so yeah so i i I like dennis very much i like some of what he does um but i tend to see that sometimes he's he's uh like i said making too much sometimes out of isolated words uh, rather than convincing parallels
1: yeah it's a good point um even in revelation which is not apocryphal it's just it's in the canon you have the passage where heart hades and death and the sea give up their dead mm-hmm. and you're like that sounds like something from out, of, out of the odyssey or something like hades and and death and the, and, and, and it turns out i didn't even realize this so recently in the orphic hymns those are all three different deities that are prayed to mm-hmm. that's is the sea you actually do it. There's a hymn to Thassala. there's a hymn to death, Thanatos, and there's a hymn to Hades. And so you're like, are these characters that are in the Revelation? I've asked so many academics this question, and I get so many different. It's like it's all over the place. It's kind of a mysterious passage. Do you have any thoughts
0: on that passage or no? Uh, not on that particular passage because I haven't really thought about it, but just one other thing to think about because because we're bringing in the canon here uh dennis did a really good study of the gospel of mark uh as as a transformation of the odyssey and i used to assign it in my classes years ago uh because i thought it was really fun and, and coming back to this issue of history you know how much of mark's gospel the first gospel that we know of it that existed is history and how much is it well this is how you tell stories of heroic figures and the the, the, the paradigm of heroic figures is Odysseus, and the storms at sea, right, in the Gospel of Mark. Um, uh, he makes something out of the fact that the, the Zebedee brothers, John and James, are called the Sons of Thunder, and that evokes something from the Odyssey as well. So I, I really enjoyed that. I'm not sure how convinced I was before, by it, but again, why wouldn't a Greek writing author know uh, the Odyssey, and why wouldn't that influence his, his text?
1: yeah have you the one that so i agree with you on mcdonald i think he's convincing in some areas and others not i totally uh think you're i think you're right about that the one that i'm really convinced about that he told me that i'll never i just see it like i just see what he sees is the the one about the anointing of jesus feet have you heard this one yet
0: i don't think so good
1: one i'll tell you about it it's it's really fascinating so in this, in the gospel of Mark, I think it's chapter 14, beginning of chapter 14, when Jesus's feet are being anointed or rubbed and, and oil is being put on it and she's drying it with her hair. And all the other, all the other disciples are getting pissed off and like, come on, they could have sold that to the poor. And he says, no, 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 no. What she done, what she did today will be, will be told far and wide. Right. Something like that. Something yes. I Pretty good, Similar to that. Well, Okay. In, in Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus returns to his house and he's got his, he doesn't know, they don't know who he is. Oh, I have to go back. Paul, I have to rewind for a second. Jesus is, uh, the woman recognizes that he's the Messiah. She, so there's a recognition happening. She recognizes he's the Messiah. Well, okay, so let's go back to Odyssey. Odysseus' feet are being rubbed by. Euryclea. She doesn't know who would nobody knows it's Odysseus yet. He mm-hmm. comes back, he's got his cloak over his head, and she's rubbing his feet, and then she recognizes her master. And okay, you're like, all right, what's so big a deal about that? Well, her name is Eurycleia. The name Eurycleia means fame far and wide. Mm. What Jesus told the woman that's rubbing her feet that sure what she did today will be told far and wide. It's almost as if it's a pun yeah on the name Euroclea.
0: i thought that was interesting yeah yeah that's that's you know that's certainly a better example than the ones i think would be dodgy that sounds really interesting i don't remember that from from back when i was looking at his his mark book but it's probably in there um but yeah it sounds really interesting
1: yeah but like you know it's obviously these are obviously not uh it's it's theories you know it's just who knows like it could be there it could be there's also the there's also the possibility that it's not done on purpose like okay I'll give you like today when people write music
0: mm-hmm.
1: or films or whatever put out a new new movie and they 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 could be writing stuff into the film or into the song that could be influences from places and not even realizing it yeah. just it just kind of shows up there there's that possibility as well yeah it's And do, like, and yeah. do you think
0: people would not be influenced by their culture it is just bonkers like people yeah. have, right uh, it seeps into everything uh whether whether intentional or unintentional or uh whether it's just just a, a a way to tell a story or to make a really impactful point um it can range right it, um it that what he's doing there might simply just be a clever evocation to those who would recognize it rather than, you know, a great theological statement. Right. Um, so can, yeah, the, 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 value of these parallels can range for sure.
1: Well, I really enjoyed this. I uh, hope you did as well. Anything else you want to, anything, any projects coming out? I know you got the third edition of these apocryphal texts. I had the link in the description for that. Great. Um, anything else you
0: want to say before we close out? Um. Well, it would be nice if people bought that book. Um, um and uh, there is a possibility of, of of additional volumes, but I'm really tired, and so it'll be a while. That's uh, a lot. you did a lot of work, and I really appreciate it because there's yeah. a lot. Of, all everything's in
1: one place for everybody. By the way, but just in case anyone's wondering, the links are in the description for the apocryphal text. There's three editions, tons of tons of books that you might have never even heard of that professor burke has put together for us which i'm very grateful for
0: yeah and of course i'm the editor of it i'm not the writer but some of the yeah. material in there is mine and certainly the editorial job is is uh it's not nothing uh, it's a lot of work um wow. and you know they're they're intended to be somewhat affordable they're around 100 dollars each so they're not uh, they, they we do i do like the idea of getting scholarly ideas out to as wide an audience as possible. And that's, you know, why we do the the resource I mentioned earlier, the Nascals E. So if you don't, you know, if, if picking up these books is not something you want to do or can afford, this that resource gives you an awful lot of information about these texts. You know, there's summaries of the text, there's um, full bibliographies, manuscript images, images of iconography and all this other stuff that that's there, free to use, it's just, um, and again, it's not, it's not something that, that I'm the sole creator of it. I'm an editor and a, and a contributor, but uh, these are, this is uh, our organization, the North American Society for the Study of Christian Apocrypha Literature, our uh, way of getting our scholarship, what we work on out to as wide an audience as possible. Um, beyond that, I'm, I'm working on the, uh, a volume for the Anchor Bible Reference Series on Apocrypha, um, this thing has taken, so far, taken me several years, and it will take me several more years. Um, so, most of the, right now, I'm trying to put my head down and get that finished, and and uh, that'll be, yeah, a little while away. So, um, things will be quiet for, f- from me for a while,
1: until I comes out. Well, thank you again for your time, and you have just attained True
0: Gnosis. You have just attained True Gnosis. The Demiurge has no power over.